Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Kings 3, 1 to 15. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 282, or you can pull it up on your Bible app or read along on the screens. The ESV version will be displayed. Again, that's 1 Kings 3, 1 to 15. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall round, Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people. May God bless the reading of his word. Pastor Jeff will now preach on the topic of wisdom and blessing from 1 Kings 3 through 10, continuing the Three Kings sermon series. Pastor Jeff. Morning, Crossbridge. So good to worship with you all this morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at, at Crossbridge. Uh, I remember when I was a youth, my friend was telling me how he had heard his older brother pray and, and use the word nourish when he was praying before a meal. My friend was telling me, like, wow, that is, that is such a good word. I'm going to start using it. Yeah, God, we just pray that this food would nourish our bodies. If you've hung around Christians or you've attended church long enough, you kind of start to pick up on certain words that we get that yet used a lot in prayer or in church settings. It's like the, the church version of a SAT vocabulary. And there's two other words that come to mind when it comes to the words that we use when we pray. When there's a, a tough decision that needs to be made or we're praying about a hard situation that we need to navigate through. And so what do we ask for? Wisdom and discernment. So this morning, I'm probably being a little bit more self-aware and poking fun more at myself than any of you, because you know, even this morning during Sunday morning prayer, I was praying a prayer for wisdom and discernment. Over the past few years, I've heard and seen a lot of prayers for wisdom and discernment for these two things. Because we ask for these two things over these past few years when it comes to how to do church. We need wisdom and discernment to know how to, to faithfully but also relevantly address all the issues going on in our world. We're praying for our leaders, church leaders and country's leaders, who need wisdom and discernment. We're asking for these things for ourselves, 
for our peers, for our family members, as we figure out you know, where to move or whether to move or whether to take that new job or switch careers or how to parent our kids and what to do with that or, or which school to apply to or which major to take to declare. And the list goes on and on and on because there's all these issues or situations that we find ourselves in and when we're, in which we're asking, man, we, we need wisdom. We don't know what path forward to take. What are we really asking for? What are we praying for? What does it mean to have wisdom or discernment? I mean, these words sound more or less biblical, right, when, and appropriate when we use them. And it makes you or me sound super holy and, and articulate and it makes it sound like we know what we're saying or what we're doing when we pray. And so I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask for these things or shouldn't use these words. I mean, the book of James says literally that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Just wondering or posing the question whether the words of Inigo Montoya of the Prince's Pride apply here, where he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Or in our case, you know, maybe it means more, even more than what we already know it means. And so if you're just joining us this morning, we've been uh, working our way through this sermon series of the life of three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And we're nearing the, the end of the sermon series. And in the beginning of our passage this morning, we read about how Solomon loved the Lord. And God appears to Solomon one night and he says to him, you know, what, what do you want? Ask for it and I will give it to you. And so this is Solomon's answer, verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? It's a good answer. As God says to Solomon, his response is this, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself uh, understanding to discern what is right? Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. So what we find this morning is that Solomon, he asks for wisdom, not health, not wealth, or a win. Solomon is, is he's this king that is coming to the scene, and he's inheriting the kingdom of his father David, which we spent the last few weeks preaching on. And he's inheriting the kingdom at a time where the territory under his reign is basically has, has expanded a lot, because King David grew the kingdom, built up the nation mostly through conquest. So David was a warrior. He would go out as king, and, uh, and all these nations would fall to his armies. And so the nation would grow, the kingdom would grow, and, and Solomon inherits this incredibly large and significant kingdom, a kingdom that expands beyond just Israel to all these other surrounding territories. And now the problem for Solomon, as we find this morning, is not a military one, like his father David, but an administrative one, and a, a, a political one. I mean, you can see from the, you can kind of see from the map uh, that Solomon virtually controlled all the land between Egypt and the Hittite kingdom up in the north. And so all these red lines, you can see, is all under his territory. 
And so what we see here is God blessing Solomon and his people. And what we see here is once what one scholar said the promise of land made to Abraham back in Genesis, the promise of land taught by Moses, secured by Joshua, expanded by David, and now under the rule of Solomon. Solomon is in this position to be this major player in the international affairs as he deals with all these nations, all this territory. And the question now that gets kind of probed in our in our pose here is how is he going to govern it how is he going to rule over this how is he going to continue in that success it's going to take a lot of wisdom solomon doesn't need another win and so he asked god for an understanding mind to govern his people you know this means the ability to, and the skill to discern between good and evil, between right and wrong. And so when, when Solomon's asking for an understanding mind, the words that he uses literally says he's asking for a heart that hears. Right? He, that is a listening or an obedient heart. Because you, you obey something if you've actually heard it. Right? You just ask your parents. Wisdom for, for Solomon is, is rooted in knowing what God deems to be right and good. And then not only that, but being able to apply that to circumstances and life situations that aren't actually specifically spelled out by God or, or in his word. It's more than just knowing and memorizing and doing the word of God. It's not just grasping a piece of information and just memorizing it, because it's a lot of education sometimes, right? We just memorize facts and Bible verses and all these different things. But life, life is more complicated than the Ten Commandments. And so wisdom, wisdom in a sense, is more like jazz music when we think about it than classical music. And some of us, some of you, have grown up learning an instrument, a classical you know, playing classical music on an instrument, whether it's piano or violin or whatever it might be, right? Playing Bach and Beethoven and Mozart. And so we've spent time, hours, countless hours, memorizing countless sheets of music. We've worked on technique and fingering, all the while still trying to add our personal expression to each piece. But jazz music, though, right? One author is writing about it, and he writes this. All great jazz musicians have at least three, uh, three things in, in common. First, they've gone into the practice room, and they've learned and internalized all the scales, which are simply organized sequence of notes, until they can basically play it backwards and forwards. And, and second, they've put in the time to learn all the standard jazz songs. They've learned the book. And third, they can play every one of those standard songs in any key, and so they can walk into any club and be like, oh, you want to play this song in the key of A? Sure. Or the key of C? Got it. They're ready to adapt and change and just address whatever situation they find themselves in. And so the author writes, living a life of wisdom is a lot like becoming a great jazz soloist. As counterintuitive as it may seem, he, he writes, we have to practice for spontaneity. We have to do our homework ahead of time so that we're able to creatively improvise when the moment arises. 
A life of wisdom, he writes, is about learning to think on our feet, about learning to be responsive, sensitive to the actual conditions of life. When I was uh, just starting out, when I was much younger, uh, serving on worship team, playing drums, now, I, I didn't have to worry about sheets of music or notes. I just hit cymbals and, and toms and snares. But I remember looking over at the sheets of music in front of the pianist and being just really confused because I grew up playing piano and playing classical music on piano. And I was like, where are all the notes? Now, how do you know what you're supposed to play? Because what I expected was a, a sheet of music like what I would have to memorize for piano recitals and competitions that told you exactly what to play and when to play it, just like the top half of this picture. But what I encountered was a sheet of lyrics with a, a G there, an A minor there, an F there. And other than that, it's just white space in between. But this is literally what our worship team uses to, to lead us in worship and song and praise every single week. And it works because our instrumentalists, our pianists, our electric guitarists, they, they know the scale so well that they can apply it to any situation, any song. They can fill in those white spaces with the right notes. Again, there's still a right and wrong way to play. We would tell. We would know, but they can fill in all those white spaces with the right notes because they've internalized it. They know it so well. And so wisdom, as one author puts it, is lived knowledge, right? It's the ability to transpose what we know here to that problem over there. And so Solomon is asking for an understanding mind, a heart that hears, the ability to have lived knowledge, not just to know God's commands and what God the perfect and good God deems to be good and right, but to be able to apply that. And so Solomon asks, again, for wisdom, not health, wealth, or a win. And so immediately, over the course of the next seven chapters or so, next seven or eight chapters, that, that wisdom is tested and demonstrated in a couple of different ways. And so we begin to get a glimpse of what this wisdom looks like. So first, Solomon's wisdom was demonstrated judicially, or to bring about justice. So verses 16 to 28, immediately after this prayer, this encounter with God, then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Then one woman said, oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. And we were alone. There's no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. And the first said, no, 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 the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. And thus they spoke before the king. Now the king speaks. He says, the one says, this is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. The king says, bring me a sword. 
So the sword was brought before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. And the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. They stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Life, again, as many of us know, it's more complicated than just the Ten Commandments. You and I, King Solomon knew, knew, we're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to steal. And yet, Solomon finds himself in a situation where it's not clear who's doing the lying, who's doing the, the stealing. He finds himself in a situation where he needs wisdom and discernment to bring about justice. And God's word doesn't always specifically address every single situation or dilemma that occurs in this world. That's not necessarily the, the entire ultimate purpose of God's word. Otherwise, it would be a, an infinite amount of pages. But that doesn't mean that God's word isn't relevant or authoritative or applicable or useful to those dilemmas. It just means that not every situation is spelled out. I mean, Solomon couldn't just be like, you know, please turn your Bibles to page 194 where it says what to do when two women claim the same baby. There's no DNA evidence back then. There's no eyewitnesses. There are no bystanders with their cell phones out recording every single thing. Solomon needed wisdom. And he needed wisdom for the exact purpose to bring about justice. He not only demonstrates the wisdom of God judicially, but he also demonstrates it administratively. This is the second example. In chapter 4, as we continue and progress through the passage, there's a whole list of names of Solomon's officials. And I wouldn't blame you if you kind of just skipped right over it. You know, even I did it on my first pass through. But remember, Solomon's kingdom is large. He needs wisdom to organize the kingdom. He needs wisdom to sustain the successes of the kingdom. And so what he does, what that passage is showing us, is that Solomon is, is assigning different uh, district governors to, who are responsible to run this kingdom, to raise revenue for this nation. Now the third way, third way in which Solomon demonstrates his wisdom is intellectually. Verses 29 to 32. And Solomon gave wisdom and, under, uh, wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And breath of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and he wrote 1,005 songs. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and also from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So judicially, administratively, intellectually, and even politically now. Solomon is building the temple for God, a place of worship for God, and he makes this alliance. He has the wisdom to make this alliance with the king of Tyre to supply the materials for the temple. And then later on, Solomon's wisdom has attracted even people from the farthest 
parts of the world. The Queen of Sheba comes and asks him question after question. And finally, she testifies and says, Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. heard. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may, again, execute justice and righteousness. So over and over and over again through these seven, eight chapters, we see wisdom being used to solve difficult uh, problems and navigate hard solutions or situations. But the, the wisdom, again, the wisdom that Solomon is asking for here is more than just problem solving. It's more than just when it's hard to see what path forward we should take. Solomon is asking for a kind of wisdom which means being able to discern between good and evil, right and wrong. And, and that's more than just knowledge. Solomon knew that. He was walking with God. He was walking in his statutes, in his commandments. He's not asking to know what is right and wrong. You can simply read the scroll or read the Pentateuch. But he's asking for the ability to discern, the skill to apply that knowledge in life to act justly, to do justice. And so there is a, a huge kind of presupposition or assumption, and it's this. Walking in wisdom comes first from walking with God. So if we were to, to actually read through these eight chapters that talk about Solomon's wisdom and God's blessing on Solomon and Israel, we, what we would find or what we would start to notice is this common thread that shows up throughout these eight chapters, and it's this word walk. Walk shows up like 14 times in just a, a bunch of different verses. So I'm just going to read two passages, one at the beginning one at the end. 1 Kings 3, 14. He says, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And at the end, he says, as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So over and over and over again, this, this picture, this theme of walking with God shows up. And it makes sense because wisdom is, is not simply just discerning between right and wrong. Right? It's rooted in an ongoing relationship with the one who is perfect, righteous, and good. It has to do with our whole attitude in our disposition towards God. Even earlier as our presider Wen was praying, she was praying about how we sometimes have chosen foolishness instead of wisdom, how we've turned our hearts away from God. And at the center of all this in the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings is this emphasis on walking with God and on worshiping God and Him alone. And so 1 Kings 1 to 11, which is uh, what we've been preaching through, is laid out in what we call this chiastic structure. It's basically like this literary form. And here, you, you can kind of see, it's five corresponding parts that kind of mirror each other, and it kind of leads to the center and the high point of the narrative. 
And at the center of these 11 chapters is the completion and the dedication of the temple, this place of worship for God and God alone. And surrounding that high point, then, is a series of opposing events, not all of them, but a lot of them, pointing to Solomon's initial successes that kind of turn to corresponding failures. Then this is linked to a repeated reminder for Solomon to worship God alone and to walk with God. And that serves as the, the backdrop for wisdom. And even as Minister Taylor preached last week, if you remember, he, he posed the question of whether Solomon had a good start. Not so much, right? Even at the beginning, Solomon, yes, he was the wisest king that ever lived, but there are still choices that he made during his reign that made this repeated emphasis on walking with God. And it makes sense why, why God keeps hounding it and, and, and emphasizing it. Solomon worshipped at these high places, these places that were notorious for idol worship. He made a marriage alliance with, with Egypt, which created an, an open wound, uh, uh, made him compromised. Even the passages that talk about his construction of God's temple is juxtaposed against him building his own palace, which he spent many, many more years on. Walking with wisdom comes first from walking with God. And so we ask, what, what does this mean for us today when we look at the example and the life of King Solomon? And over the past few weeks, we've been hearing different preachers preach, and, and they've mentioned, several preachers have already mentioned, examples of failed Christian leaders. It makes sense because we're preaching a series on, on kings, on leaders. And I don't need to go into listing all these examples again. Many of, them, many of you know what they are or who they are, but I, I would maybe say that their failures was not necessarily due to a lack of wisdom when it came to administrative problems, when it came, a lack of wisdom when it came to answering hard theological questions. It came from a lack of walking with God. It came from worshiping something else other than God. And by worshiping, I mean that these other things, whether it be sex or power or money, govern them way more than the wisdom they had to govern their people and their churches and their organizations. And so one application for us this morning. Pray for our leaders. And as we have been, I know that we have, and I, when I say leaders, I would include myself and Minister Pat and the Board of Elders, the Board of Deacons, even the various core leadership teams that serve in this church, Crossbridge Leadership Corps and Karis Corps and many other corps because we have a lot of corps in this church. And so sure, yeah, pray to God for us for wisdom and discernment. But pray also that we would continue to walk with God. Pray that we would worship God and God alone. Pray that we would saturate our minds and our hearts with God's word so much so that we'd be able to fill in those white spaces with the right notes. Pray that we would have an ongoing relationship with God. And let me assure you, 
that you can feel free to pray those prayers with us and in front of us. Now, I'm not, I can't speak for others, but I'm not going to take it as an indirect, you know, passive-aggressive prayer or comment as if you're trying to send, a, send me a message. Pray for us that we would not just have wisdom in the sermon, but that we would be walking in God as we lead the church. A second point of application for us this morning. In the Gospels, Jesus refers back to this incident with the Queen of Sheba, and he uses it as a, as a lesson as he teaches the crowds. And so in the Gospel of Luke, he says, Luke eleven thirty one, the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And the point here that Jesus is making is that you have this Gentile, this foreigner who comes from far away to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And she acknowledges it, she testifies it to it, and Jesus now says, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And that's to say that there is something greater than the wisdom of Solomon. And that is the wisdom found in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. There is a call, not just to leaders, but to each and every one of us here in this room and listening, watching online, to find wisdom not just in a set of ideas, not just in a set of self-help books, but in a person, Jesus, and the message of salvation that he brings. The gospel, it's not just a set of truths to memorize. It's not just a, a list of Bible memory verses to recite off so you can get a trophy in children's ministry. But it is the very filter by which our entire life passes through. The gospel has an impact on every aspect of our lives. Relationships, our ethics, our politics, our jobs, our health. Everything that we do to live our lives, it informs our decisions and it informs our life. So let us together seek after wisdom and let us walk with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you, the only true and wise and good king. We pray that we would have wisdom. You, we know that in your scriptures it says that if any of us lacks wisdom, to ask you for it. Help us to walk with you and help us to be able to discern between good and evil to apply that to the white spaces in our lives, the white spaces that are situations, complicated situations in our lives, that we might be able to live for you and to do justice and to do good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.